Football is back, and right now Bet365 are offering a wide range of markets, including first, last, and anytime goal scorers. With over 45 million members, it's the world's favourite online betting company. We've got wall-to-wall Premier League football with games being played nearly every day. And with Bet365 Bet Builder, you can combine match results, players to score, number of goals, and more to create your own personalised bet. And if you can't watch all the games live, with Bet365's match day feature, you can follow every moment through live graphics and text. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple App Store, over 18s only. Please gamble responsibly. Welcome to the Ornstein and Chapman podcast on The Athletic. Coming up today, Manchester City will be in the Champions League next season after their two-year UEFA ban was overturned, the only punishment being a €10 million fine. We'll get reaction from inside the Etihad Stadium with our City writer Sam Lee and look at what this means for the future of financial fair play with our football news and investigations reporter Matt Slater. We'll also bring you insight on yet another potential Chelsea recruit. This week it's the Ajax goalkeeper Andre Anana they're keen on, as doubts persist over the form of Kepa. The athletic Simon Johnson will fill us in on the latest there. And with Leeds moving ever closer to Premier League promotion, we check in with Phil Hay for a look at the current mindset of Marcelo Bielsa, and he pays tribute to the great Jack Charlton, who sadly died on Friday night. Right now, The Athletic is free for 30 days, bringing you the very best football writing around, covering you until the end of the season. Just go to theathletic.com forward slash Ornstein and Chapman to sign up. Now, the big breaking news this Monday is that Manchester City are free to play in the Champions League next season and beyond after their two-year European ban was overturned by the Court of Arbitration for Sport, with the only punishment being a penalty of €10 million. Joining us now to discuss what this means for Man City, for Pep, their players and also the wider ramifications for UEFA's attempts to enforce financial fair play rules are Sam Lee and Matt Slater. The guys have written a brilliant piece that you can read over on The Athletic now. And Sam, let's start with you. What's the feeling inside City after this verdict? Is it joy, relief, surprise, defiance? Uh, One thing I know is that Pep certainly looked happy in a selfie that was posted on Instagram. Uh, I think it's actually just been deleted. (laughs) Yeah, uh, my man Estiate, his Pep's right-hand man, goes everywhere with him, sorts everything out. He posted it, so it was Pep. Estiate, Soriano, Omar Barada, who's the chief coordinating officer, uh, Cheeky Bagheerstein, with Sky Sports News in the background, all looking very happy. Uh, so I think we can kind of take the lead from that, really. It's joy. You know, I don't think there's any surprise in it. They've always said they would get this ban overturned, or th- th- indeed, they wouldn't even face a ban in the first place. The two elements I'd heard was, you know, back when, way before this, the ban was handed out in February, they thought, well, they can't ban us, and even if they do, we'll get it overturned. So they've always been incredibly confident in their own position as we've seen i think from some of the statements they put out in the past few months so i don't think there's any surprise today potentially a bit of relief because you never know you know maybe something could go against them but they've been so confident in their position it'll be a tiny bit of relief but just just joy they can you know this is this is put to bed well well it's not quite put to bed we'll get into that but you know as far as the champions league ban is put as far as that goes and as far as you know you wait for an ffp and and all of this that that has been 
put to bed. Matt, coming with a mini uh, reminder, a bit of a backgrounder, two key elements to this uh, that City faced and uh, one of them they have been cleared on, the other one not entirely. Yeah, I mean, look, the, the, the charge when it came was that they'd overstated their sponsorship income. So that's a pretty you know, straightforward financial fair play issue. You know, that they had exaggerated how much money they were getting from their sponsors, that it actually came via Sheikh Mansour, uh, and that they'd also downplayed their costs with a, with a few sort of like clever pieces of accounting. And then the second charge was that they'd failed to cooperate with the investigation. In fact, they'd been very obstructive, you know, throughout from pretty much the, the, the moment the Spiegel, the German the German publication first published these these bombshell allegations back in November 2018, all the way through last year. Let's not forget Man City tried to preemptively get this thrown out at Cass. This is the second time uh, City and UEFA have been at Cass. The first time was late last year when Cass sort of said to City, look, guys, we're, we're an appeal court. You need to let UEFA... Um, finish its process by all means come back you know when that process is finished and you know that's what that's what's eventually happened so uh, those are the two charges overstating the income and not cooperating uh the verdict and that's all we've got at the moment so uh, i know we're going to discuss this a bit more but but we've got a press release the the working out if you like is to come casa promised that in the coming days we have never seen uefa's working out either they have always said that they will publish their written judgment as soon as the you know the, the cast verdict was out as well they didn't want to prejudge that they didn't want to um you know didn't want to sort of prejudice that so we've got two big written pieces to come to read and i think the devil will be in the detail because there's a key line in the verdict i mean look, the, the main bit of course is that is that is that cast has said there is no evidence we are we are saying we are not going to um you know, sanction city for overstating sponsorship income. So that element of it, the most serious charge, if you like, goes away. But we do think there is a failure to cooperate. So the ban goes away and the fine remains, though even here I think is a is a win for City because it's been reduced by two thirds. It was thirty million, it's down to ten million euros. So that's all that's the that's the the sanction that City have, a ten million euro fine, nine million quid. But as I said, there's a key line, an absolutely crucial line that uh, we will be debated endlessly, I think, when we see these reports, and that is on the sponsorship side, the FFP side. Most of UEFA's case was either not established, i.e. not proven, or it was time barred. And I think this is where the debate will continue. If it comes to pass that City effectively got away on a technicality, in that there was a statute of limitation and UEFA just didn't bring this case in time, or it was dealt with in the past and therefore couldn't be unpicked and dealt with again. I think people, uh, it will probably go on club, club allegiances, won't it? But there will be a lot of people saying, guys, you know, you were guilty and you got away with it on a technicality. If it is more of the other, more of the not proven, not established, well, then City can say, well, look, guys, there was, we, we told you there was nothing to this from the beginning. And now an independent court has agreed with us. People I've spoken to at City feel completely vindicated that justice has been served. People I speak to outside of City cannot believe 
this outcome. They are genuinely stunned and we'll come on to some of that in a bit. Sam, you were initially confident back in November that City would be cleared. Uh, I heard more recently that since returning from football shutdown, Pep Guardiola addressed his squad and said that he had been told by the chief executive, Ferran Soriano, uh, that City would be cleared of this. Uh, was that confidence always there throughout this process and why? Or were City privately preparing for the worst? Incredibly confident the whole time. Like I was saying, they either thought, well, they're not going to get banned at all. Or if they do, then when it goes to Cass, they'll be able to, to clear their name. So that, that confidence has been there the whole way through. And I mean, in terms of, you say, I was confident when me and Matt did the story, you know, to do a story like that in November, and look, we took a pretty big bath on it when City got the two-year ban a few months later. You know, we we stuck our necks out and said there'd be no ban. And a few a few of the details may have slipped slipped through the cracks on, on our part. So it's difficult to sit here and say, well, we knew all along that they weren't going to get, they weren't going to get punished once it went to, to Cass. But that was part of the information back then um, it was certainly difficult to live with um, on the evening of Valentine's Day uh, <laughs> but that co- that confidence has always been there at City I th- I'd say mine had ro- eroded after that the first ban you know in in February after it had been pushed back because again there was going to be a there was going to be a decision in December and it got pushed back and got pushed back and then you start thinking what's going on here and then a two-year ban my, my confidence had pretty much eroded in it but I would imagine like all those statements and the interview from Ferran Soriano a few days after the ban you could tell that that confidence was there and yeah the why probably because as exactly as we've seen today with the cast verdict there was nothing that could be proven there may well have been nothing there to, to prove in the first place or there may have been some stuff in there which we'll see by the end of the week I would imagine um, which is time barred by UEFA's own statute and ultimately which I think is a bit of a surprise because I spoke to a few legal experts to do articles on this and I asked them about the whole time barred element, and everybody said that wouldn't be so, that wouldn't be such a problem for UEFA. That the cast panel would look at everything de novo, which is the Latin another Latin legal phrase, and decide that you know if there's good reason to look back more than five years, then they would allow it. Um, but maybe that other part of it, maybe that other part of the verdict that says it couldn't be established, maybe there was just nothing. There was there was nothing that UEFA could prove deeply enough for them to actually go back and kind of undo those UEFA statutes. But yeah, that, that confidence in City has been there the whole time. And if you look at any press conference Guardiola's done since Friday, I mean, he's always said the same thing, but since Friday, before the Brighton game, immediately before the Brighton game, after the Brighton game, he's like so suspiciously confident. You wonder how long he's known for. He might not have known at all, but the little smile on his face was very suspiciously confident, I think. And that kind of shows how how City have been the whole way through this. They they knew, for whatever reason, they were on very sturdy ground. What do you think about that, Matt? I mean, I've read many suggestions that UEFA would probably not have ended up bringing this case if it wasn't for the Der Spiegel link, leaks, which kind of left them with no choice. And then the appeal goes to Cass. Then you've got the Man City confidence. I mean, surely they wouldn't have known the outcome, but they might have just had a feeling uh, from the whole process that the ruling was going to fall on their side. Well, there's absolutely no question this wouldn't have happened without Der Spiegel. And they, they let's just remind everybody, they were leaked emails, hacked emails, though City have never really kind of properly addressed that. They've always sort of strongly suggested they were stolen emails between senior figures at City, apparently talking about various ideas to circumvent UEFA's rules on spending limits and, and you know, and, and some, you know, slightly unsavoury stuff as well about, about the rules and about UEFA and about how antagonistic that, that relationship had got between them and UEFA. And let's remember the context here, of course, is that City and Paris Saint-Germain are, are, are really the two biggest clubs that have been 
fallen foul of, of financial fair play. And that was back in 2014. And I think that is part of this time barring element. You know, that was the first big, really big. There had been other cases, but there, that was the first big one. It was the first big test of financial fair play. And um, UEFA, UEFA won that round. You know, City very reluctantly, and it didn't, didn't go all the way to cash, didn't fight it all the way. They accepted um, a big fine much of which was was suspended and they did get back because they lived with the terms of the agreement they made in May 2014. Just remember that, May 2014. And they had to play with some limitations around their squad uh, for a couple of years in UEFA. And, and we felt that that had been behind us. And, and certainly for the sort of the city project, the narrative was, well, look, this was a disagreement about the rules. We had an interpretation of it. They had an interpretation of it. They've, they've charged us. We still think we're right, but we're going to accept this punishment and move on. Well, the De Spiegel emails threw all that up in the air again and said, no, 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 you, you knew what you were doing. It was a cynical, knowing approach. You know, there was, um, there was no kind of difference of, of legal opinions about how to interpret the text. It was, you, you, you know, you, you knew what you were about. Now, if that is the case, there is a well-established principle in law. I think we're all aware of the idea of statutes of limitations and why we have them, why things in the past, there are time limits, memories, just finding, you know, finding evidence and just, just, just being, having to move on, having to move on, a sort of sense of, look, we can't always be retrying things that have happened in the past. Well, um, there's a well-established principle that you cannot claim statute of limitation protection if you have lied there's deception, if there's acting in bad faith. And a really good example here is Lance Armstrong. So Lance Armstrong's doping offences took place further ago, longer back than the World Anti-Doping Agency statute of limitation. But because he had lied on the record about it, he could no longer claim that protection. So I think this was one of the reasons that kind of gave you a for the confidence to do this via the FFP route. They felt that if those emails could be trusted and accepted, there was a pattern of deception here. So City no longer could claim the protection of statute of limitation. However, and I think this is where we really, really, really need to see the written reasons, it does appear that CAS have said, no, your rules are written in this way, and I'm sorry, you've written them very tightly, and we have seen in other uh, you know, FFP cases, Galatasaray springs to mind, Parasensha Man, where, UEFA have fallen foul of their own time limits before, so there is some precedent there. Not, It doesn't quite fit, but there is precedent around how tightly written the FFP rules are. I really, really cannot wait to see this working out because I think this issue around the time barring, is it is it that five years, May 2014, the, 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 this, this most recent investigation started in March 2019, which you'd think would just about get in the five years but then, you know, does it does it go all the way back to 2012? How many of the allegations are outside the time limit? Does the time limit really mean? Does it does it crystallise on that settlement in 2014? There's also another suggestion that if you look at the investigatory chamber of it's getting a bit confusing now. I know, but the 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 part of the financial fair police that kind of look at the accounts, how far back can they go? Can they actually only go back a couple of seasons because that is the reporting period? So there's a lot 
of detail that we really need to kind of get into in these written in the bigger written report but the, the time bearing time bearing issue i think is going to be fascinating sam city have still been found guilty over their cooperation or lack of with the investigation is that still damaging for their reputation it doesn't seem the biggest crime to to me or people listening to this damages in the eye of the beholder really you know how football works and how partisan it is there will be people who think think it is but uh, and again, people might think, well, I'm the Man City correspondent, so I'm going to be biased towards them. But I, t- I find it too difficult to be too bothered by this. I mean, obviously, they've broken the rules. And as Cass say, they have broken the rules. It's serious. So there's a 10 million euro ban, but it's not serious enough to be thrown out of the Champions League. And I think if we're looking at this confidence we've talked about behind the scenes, and you combine that with the statements they've made, they have have said all the way along, that they didn't really believe in the the UEFA process. They feel that UEFA wanted to ban them from the outset and they've they found a way to do that. And if that is the case, if they do feel that, you know, UEFA has treated them unfairly, and they may well feel that, you know, UEFA probably should have had a better look at PSG, which is a whole other can of worms, but we might get to that. Um, but there's a there's a very interesting stuff to be read into why PSG didn't get punished or didn't the same way. If City have felt all the way along that UEFA they can't pin this on us for a start. We haven't done anything wrong. And hold on a minute, why are they coming after us and not others? Then I can see why they've not cooperated at all. They've obviously said, well, you can do what you want. Effectively, I suppose, they've given them enough enough rope and they've said, well, we'll see you in court. And they've been incredibly confident of their legal position. And even if they did feel they were right, I would have to say, it takes some balls to, to stand on it to that degree to let UEFA go and hand out that punishment and say, well, we will clear our name. So yeah, that not cooperating, some people will say it's a sign of their disregard for the rules, but if you think that now this spotlight's going to be shined on UEFA and whether they're fit and proper and whether they're whether they're right to to prosecute some clubs and not others and all of this kind of stuff, then look, sympathy isn't something that City get. Uh, but it might be easier to sympathise with City's position to the extent that, okay, maybe they did feel that they were harshly treated. So no, they haven't cooperated with them and they didn't mind ultimately paying that fine because they proved their point. And look, we are going to see later this week how much of a point they proved. But certainly today with no European ban, regardless of what comes out with this time barred stuff at the end of the day, they're not going to be banned from Europe. They have cleared their name to an extent, which will be determined. But I think they'll be pretty vindicated in in not cooperating with the investigation. And personally, they do feel wronged all the way through by UEFA. I don't think that's the end of the world. And if another club did that in the same circumstances, my, my opinion wouldn't change. Ten years on from the inception of FFP, Matt, has there ever been lower confidence, is it, as many people are saying, dead as we know it i think it's a really interesting question and i and i i think it's perhaps too early to to sort of say sayonara to, to ffp but it but it, it, it's being damaged of course it has no one's going to pretend otherwise i think you know when if sam's talked about the piece we did in november i mean one of the things that, that i wrote as a you know as a sort of just a little bit after that was that if this plays out in that way if 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 UEFA itself, if UEFA's process effectively clears City, well, I, I really thought that would be the the end of, of FFP, certainly in in the sort of the guise that we'd seen it, because that would have been a a tacit acknowledgement that UEFA no longer had really the stomach to police these cases, to to prosecute, that they'd become very very complicated. The, the you know the teams were always one step ahead. I think let's not forget just how this erupted again it erupted because of you know, dare i say hacking whistleblowing whatever however you want to describe that that's how uefa found out about this again that's not something you could build a strategy around 
that fell in UEFA's laps. Now, you can argue that once it did fall in their laps, they had no real choice but to pursue this. I, I wonder if in the post-mortem they will be having, no doubt in Neon at UEFA's headquarters, if, if they should have gone down the FFP route here at all and wonder if this, given, given what Cass have agreed with, that there was a sort of failure to investigate and there was still a sort of pretty pretty significant fine. I wonder if they uh, if they now regret not treating this as a disciplinary case, where I, I, my understanding is the time barring element wouldn't really have come into it. It wouldn't really have then been about the team as such. It would have been about City's executives and any kind of sanction would have been more personal. But I wonder if their chances of success would have been would have been greater. Again, we're going to have to see what's in the written documents. But in terms of FFP, look, they will say it's evolved anyway. Its primary objective at the beginning was to make football more sustainable, make European club football more sustainable. It was They were very, very concerned about the amount of debt that clubs had and you know, some of the context would be, you know, Portsmouth, Rangers to a lesser extent a little bit later, but clubs all over Europe are just having unsustainable amounts of debt on their books. Um, you know, Man City, Chelsea, Man United had lots of debt as well. But the point that they've always made was, well, yeah, you know, the de our debt is to a very, very wealthy person or owner and it's entirely sustainable. So whilst it might be admirable, uh, the FFP is looking at that and addressing that. And it has, by the way, addressed that. Umpteen reports have come out to sort of suggest that club football, whilst there are exceptions to the rule, uh, is in a far better, far healthier financial position than it was a decade ago. That, that, that should never really have applied to the cities of this world anyway. I think, I think the intriguing thing for me about FFP, and this has kind of been its weakness from the beginning, is was that all it was about? Was it, was it just about making club finances healthier or was it an attempt to bring in a sort of US style um, way of increasing the competitive balance? Was it a way of reining in um, your cities and your PSGs and your other big clubs and just trying to level the playing field? Because if that's what it was, it's failed. And part of that failure is on UEFA itself because UEFA provides the rocket fuel for those elite clubs with the Champions League money. So there's already a big debate to be had about what FFP is trying to achieve. Again, this comes back to, to FFP by, by its nature it is inherently a restraint on competition. Now, I know we're leaving the European Union, but most of, most of the clubs that it applies to are still in the European Union. So it, it has, to, has to sit within European competition rules. Now, it has achieved that. It has been given a little carve out, if you like, and it has been given the stamp of approval by the European Commission because its measures were deemed to be proportionate to the risk. And the risk was this thing, this, this entertainment, this institution, this, this cultural thing that we all care about, football, was in danger of eating itself and you almost had to help save the clubs from themselves so we had to put a sort of soft salary cap in to to just you know persuade them to just behave a bit more responsibly now if that's what it's doing great that continues that work continues if it's if it's trying to sort of do something around competition well that's a bit more problematic if it's if it's targeted and it's it's trying to restrain city and paris saint-germain and whoever the next wannabe challenger club is that that's that's a harder one to, to to defend, and I I think regardless of what happens, the debate about financial fair play continues. 
its evolution must continue and there will be some tweaking of the rules regardless. I, I, again, I come back to the time barring element and, and we need to know more about that. But it, it survives. It's not dead. It's, it's not dead, but it, it needs some work and some further consultation and talk about what we're trying to achieve with it. Yeah, I think it's important to say that FFP has done quite a lot of good work. A lot of club finances are in better shape than they were before it came in. Uh, I watched an interview that the UEFA president, Alexander Scheffering, gave where he admitted that changes are going to be na- need to be made to FFP because football has changed and there are a number of issues that have arisen over the last decade that will demand um, it's reformed in one way or another. Is it fit for purpose, he was asked? Well, it depends what purpose that is and that, that's exactly what you've explained there. Just quickly on UEFA, Matt, is it once bitten, twice shy? Are they going to go in for more with the Swiss federal court or is this done and dusted? I think if City had lost, there's absolutely no question City would have kept fighting. They've, you know, they made that really, really, really clear. For, for UEFA and for any international federation, if, if CAS, which of course is sort of born of the sporting movement, and in the past was criticised for being too close to international federations, if CAS has looked at your homework and gone, guys, you didn't apply your own rules, it's really hard to see where UEFA goes. And I think, I, I wonder if when the dust settles, UEFA will sort of feel, look, guys, you wanted us to take this case. We did. You wanted us to sanction City. We did. Okay. Now, our, our work has been unpicked, but but we we did our best. Now, we can have a debate about their best but uh, UEFA can at least say we tried you know does that does that save face does is, is you know is, is on a spared there I, I I don't know and I, and I and again we need to see the written the written you know what 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 is there what hope is there because this will have cost a lot of money it's taken an awful lot of time don't forget what else is going on in the world right now um, you know they they have other issues they have they have some pretty serious things to consider and you've just mentioned about um, Financial fair play evolving. I think one of the things that will that will sort of be a catalyst to that is COVID. You know, they are effectively having to suspend uh, and delay and postpone a lot of FFP's um, criteria and reporting um, deadlines. Anyway, I think this is just going to be a really good opportunity for all of European club football, including UEFA, to to have a rethink about about financial fair play. So I, I think an appeal is really unlikely. I don't think it would have much chance of success anyway. And I'm just wondering what what it would be proving. I'm just going to pick out one of the quotes you said there. Um, You wanted us to take this case and we did. Uh, Throw it over to Sam. There were a lot of people that wanted UEFA to bring about this case. There are a lot of people inside and outside football. You only need to speak to people within the game and look at, say, social media uh, outside of it to know that people just do not believe that this outcome is true. They say we all know what City are up to. It's blatant and they've managed to wriggle out of this somehow. Let's throw it over, Sam, to the Premier League now. Do you think they will take action against City because they have their own case uh, that needs to be answered? Or do you think that this result um, and the fact that City's lawyers can now just wave the cast documents at the Premier League will see that one flitter away? Yeah, well, I think both elements of that, you know, the other fans saying, so you've got away with it on technicality or whatever. That and the Premier League potential investigation or puni- potential punishment, I should say, uh, it comes back against the time barred thing because the f- the fans are insisting the city got away with it. They might be right. We'll have to see. We'll have to see how much was time barred and, and what was time barred. You know, was it major breaches or was it not? And I suppose the interesting element regarding the Premier League punishment is, 
I would say initially it's very unlikely that they would act now. Like just to go one step further than UEFA obviously tried, but then got it thrown out by Cass with with Cass saying, let's not forget that the allegations could not be established. There was no proof effectively. So it would take a huge leap, I suppose, for the Premier League to act. So I do think it's very unlikely, but I suppose there's a remote possibility in the fact that when we see the full award from Cass later in the week and it says, for argument's sake, that there were big breaches, but they were time-barred. Maybe the Premier League would say, well, there were breaches here. We can see them. Maybe the Premier League, I mean, I'd have to check their regulations. I didn't have the chance before we'd come on. If if the Premier League aren't time-barred by stuff that happened five years ago, they may be able to act on that. And there's another Premier League rule which basically says clubs aren't allowed to falsify documents or you know, kind of fiddle the accounts in support of a UEFA licence. Now, that's not been proved, of course, because Cass have said... You know, there's there's no evidence of any of that. But again, if that's in the time barred stuff, the Premier League may say, "Oh, well, there is actually evidence of this." But under UEFA laws, you you couldn't be punished, but under ours, you could. So it's it's possible. I'm not going to sit here and say there's absolutely no chance of City getting punished. But at the same time, I'm not saying it's something I'm I'm expecting. It's a possibility. I would say it's a remote possibility, and I would be very surprised. I think if the Premier League's investigation went went anywhere really at this point. Well, we know of Premier League clubs who want City to be punished in some form. Uh, we've read reports about the so-called Gang of Eight, and I do think Manchester City uh, privately have a lingering sense of bitterness at the way that certain Premier League clubs have really tried to knife them on this situation and and made sure they get punished. But on the flip side, I think the overwhelming feeling of Premier League clubs is that they don't want to see them chucked out of the Premier League or some sort of drastic action because they do know what Manchester City, and especially on the pitch bring um, to the English top flight. Uh, as you can read in my column today, City were planning on paying their players Champions League bonuses for this season regardless of the outcome of the Cass hearing. Now City can crack on with their rep- recruitment plans, uh, Sam, I guess as normal. Uh, so what do you think they'll do about refreshing the squad? Will this change their thinking or, or is it business as usual? Well, I'm not even sure it's business as usual. I think They've kind of taken a step away from business as usual in the sense that they wanted Jorginho a couple of years ago. They kind of haggled over a few million and ended up losing out. They wanted Harry Maguire last year and they haggled over more like 10, 15 million and they lost out. And Guardiola was really pissed off and he was, was pissed off when they lost Jorginho. So although he and Cheeky Bagheerstein, the sporting director, are very close, you know, there is pressure on the sporting director and on the club to deliver these players for Guardiola and keep him happy and keep him at the club, obviously, he's got a year left on his contract. So this summer, as far as I know, and I wrote this after the Liverpool game, so obviously well before the verdict, as far as I know, City were planning on spending money on transfers this summer regardless of what happened. They were like, we're going to we're gonna make the money available. They've got it. They're going to do it. The only th- way the verdict would have changed that, I think, would have been if they'd have been banned and maybe some of the players they're lining up would have thought, actually, I know I've kind of agreed the loose outline of terms, but... I would quite like to play in the Champions League, so no thanks. So they've got, they haven't got that barrier anymore. It's effectively now full steam ahead for City. I think they're going to get at least one centre back. They want to look at a left back. You know, they want to get. Well, yeah, I think they want to get a, a, a left winger, a replacement for Sane, potentially a right winger, but I think a replacement for Sane on the left, and maybe even a striker. Now, as I've said, they've missed out on targets in the past. So just because they've got the money this this summer doesn't mean they're going to get all of those players. But they're the areas they're looking in. Uh, I don't think they're going to quibble over a few million here or there like they have in the past. And obviously now there is no European ban, so the players shouldn't really have any doubts about the future of the club. So in terms of the transfers, yeah, it's not business as usual. They might 
you know, go for it. If you think City were going for it already, they, you know, they're certainly going for it now. Yeah, definitely. With added determination, I'm sure. And we've talked quite a lot about City transfers over the last couple of weeks. We reported on their interest in Nathan Ake. You mentioned left back. I think they would uh, like to get rid of up to three. They only have three, but up to all of them. And, and um, that would be quite drastic if they were to do so. I think they've got quite a, an admiration for Alexandro at Juventus. Um, then you mentioned the, the left wing position. Uh, replacing Sane is going to be a big task. We know there's been lots of reports around uh, Kingsley Coman of Bayern Munich, but they would be keen to hold on to him. And I want to finish with a question from Halftime Orange on Twitter. Uh, and I'll put this to Matt. Given the ruling at CAS today, other clubs were obviously watching as interested parties. If you use complex sponsorship deals to avoid the equity injection clause, are other clubs going to structure deals like this, do you think? Well, yes. And and aren't they doing it already? I mean, we this is this look, this was one of the things that was playing on the background. Because I've always been quite interested. And I, you know, I genuinely can't wait to read the written reports because I've always wondered what what approach City would take? Would they would they challenge the very the very foundation of financial fair play? Would they go on a sort of you know more procedural element around time barring? Would they would they challenge the use of stolen emails as a sort of basis for a case against them? You know what what would they do? And I certainly have been led to believe that they were going to sort of try a little bit of everything. We saw them try a little bit of um, of, of some of those approaches at the first CAS hearing. As I say, let's let's see what's in the report. Now, the kind of whataboutery defence, I thought, could be really quite effective for them and would throw shade at UEFA, make it look personal, you know, weaken sort of the foundation of, of, of FFP. And it would have been things like, well, what is so different about Paris Saint-Germain and how their owner, um, you know, runs Being Sport, and Being Sport is a major, is the major broadcaster in France and has injected huge amounts of money into all French clubs. They, of course, have Qatari, the Qatari owned. They have Qatari sponsors too. What about Bayern and its close links with its sponsors, its shareholders? What about um, Juve? and its sponsorship with Jeep, which of course is part of the um, Fiat family, and the Fiat family have owned Juventus for pretty much ever. Um, the Agnellis, uh, they, um, you know, post-Ronaldo arrival, basically just ripped up a perfectly good sponsorship agreement and sort of agreed to give Juventus even more money. Uh, and look, we can, we can go on. There are other examples. So um, we've already seen clubs doing very clever, innovative, use your own adjective there, things with sponsors around naming rights and shirts and options on naming rights deals. I'm thinking of Everton immediately here with their relationship with with um, Alicia Usmanov and the um, option he has taken out on a stadium that hasn't even, there's no space in the ground yet. So this is, this is one of the issues that UEFA faces. You know, you write down any rules. This is like Formula One every year. You write down your rules and the teams, part of the game is to find the loopholes. Okay, we can't do that, but could we do this? Ah, oh, it says you specifically can't do that, but it doesn't say anything about trying this. And this is this is professional sport. Um, so I would argue it's already happening. 
Uh, are we going to get more of it? Absolutely. Of course we are. Gentlemen, thank you. Go and take a breather. I'm sure you've got plenty more work to be getting on with and you can read more about Manchester City from Sam and Matt over on The Athletic. You can also listen to Sam on the Why Always Us podcast. Harry's sponsors the Ornstein and Chapman podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Harry's was founded by Jeff and Andy, two ordinary guys who were sick and tired of overpriced razors. Jeff and Andy knew there was only one way to ensure quality, so they bought their own factory. And now by taking less profit, Harry's offers great quality products for a fair price. Their amazing quality blades are now almost half the price of the leading five blade brands. I can vouch for that. And with football coming back, if you're anything like me and could do with sharpening up your appearance, give them a go. Harry's trial set includes everything you need for a close and comfortable shave. As a listener of the Ornstein and Chapman podcast, you can start shaving with Harry's today by claiming your trial set for £3.95. Support our podcast and get your set delivered to you, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, foaming shave gel and travel blade cover by going to harrys.com forward slash Ornstein right now. That's harrys.com forward slash Ornstein. Chelsea monitoring Andre Anana as doubts remain about Kepa's future is one of the headlines from my column this week as the Blues continue to survey the transfer market for potential recruits. Cameroon international Anana started out at Barcelona, currently plays for Ajax, and our man in Spain, Dermot Corrigan, reports that the 24-year-old would be available for around €30 million Euros this summer. Let's get some insight from the Chelsea side of things now with the Athletics' Simon Johnson. Simon, we're reporting that there has been regular contact between Chelsea and Anana's representatives in recent months. How far advanced do you think these talks are at the moment? Well, David, I think the uh, there's no doubt as Dermot reported that there's been plenty of contact with the representatives and, and I believe there's been contact with, with Ajax too, but it's a very delicate situation with Chelsea chasing a number of targets in different areas, plus there's the whole Kepper conundrum, which I'm sure we're going to get onto in a moment. So it's, it's a very sort of delicate situation of Chelsea have only so much money to play with and where do they spend it? And when they're going after players like Havertz, Ben Chilwell... Declan Rice, and they've got a world record transfer fee for a goalkeeper as their number one. It's it's that there's only so much money to play with. So at the moment, there's nothing um, imminent, but the situation could change depending on, of course, where Chelsea finish in the uh, in the Premier League as well. Yeah, there are so many elements to this. People I speak to within the game tell me that it's the worst possible summer for goalkeepers to move, especially big goalkeepers, because the vacancies aren't there pretty much it's going to be hard to move a goalkeeper out to make space for somebody that you want in and especially in the case of Kepa because the fee would be so high given what they paid for him and what they're paying him in a salary we'll come back to that in a minute but let's look at Kepa's future because you touched upon it there Uh, there were more questions asked of him at the weekend in the defeat at Sheffield United are Chelsea close on giving up on a player that cost them eighty million euros in 2018? Well, I think you have to sort of bear in mind there's the football side of it, the management side of it, and the club side of it. Now, Frank Lampard inherited this player, and he's a man that played with arguably the, the greatest goalkeeper in Chelsea's history in Petr Cech. Would he have picked Kepper as his goalkeeper? I'm not sure he would. But he's in a difficult situation because this was a deal brought in before his time in charge. And are Chelsea willing to lose face because they spent an awful lot of money on just letting this guy go? That is a big, big decision for them to make. 
And as you rightly point out, he costs an awful lot of money, both in terms of transfer fee and wages. So what do you do with a guy like that? There's not going to be very many takers, particularly the way he's playing either. The only interest that we're hearing is is in Spain regarding loan deals to Sevilla and Valencia. Can Chelsea really be seen to let a player that they spent so much money on to go on loan? It's a, it's a question they're going to have to answer because at the same time, is this the keeper with the lowest save percentage in the Premier League this season that's going to help them challenge for major honours? I think... Frank Lampard is not going to admit it publicly, but privately, um, I think he does have concerns over whether this guy is the right man going forward. So it's understandable then why Chelsea are looking at other options. But like I said, it's a very, very difficult decision for them to make politically because if they let this guy go, questions inevitably are going to be asked of the people responsible for this transfer. And let's remind people listening to this that actually Chelsea were in before signing Kepa for Alisson Becker, who ended up Mm. uh, going to Liverpool as they nipped in uh, to sign the Brazilian. And that shows that Kepa wasn't Chelsea's first choice. They did need to sign a goalkeeper in pretty rapid time, given that Thibaut Courtois was on his way out to Real Madrid. And now maybe a slightly rushed decision at the time is coming home to roost. One thing I don't think can happen is that somebody like Anana could come in while Kepa is still there. That calibre of goalkeeper would want to be first choice. Is your sort of understanding the same, Simon? Yeah, I can't see how that would work and why a top goalkeeper would want to um, join Chelsea if that's the scenario and also why Kepa would accept that too. And going back, although we did see this, I should hasten to add, we did see, of course, Thibaut Courtois when he came back from his loan at Atletico Madrid as the number one and Petr Cech as number two, which is arguably the strongest two-goalkeeper combination uh, the Premier League has seen. I mean, Chelsea are paying the price for what happened in, in January 2018. First and foremost, they messed up the contract negotiations with Thibaut Courtois. He was very close to signing, so I'm led to believe. And then let's just say that talks broke down. At the same time, Kepa was on the verge of a move to Real Madrid, only for Zinedine Zidane to pull the plug on that because he didn't rate him. And that's when uh, the domino started to fall, as in Real Madrid got in contact with Thibaut Courtois. And of course, once that happened, he wasn't really interested in renegotiating with Chelsea anymore and, and made it pretty clear he wanted to go. Then Chelsea were in for Alisson, but certain dilly-dallying and also Alisson's own mind in his own mind he wanted to join Liverpool over Chelsea and and that left them with this this option for Kepa which you now have to uh, say in hindsight given that they're also looking at keepers like short-term options like uh, Kasper Schmeichel who's who's done barring the game against Bournemouth a, a very good job for Leicester you would have thought that actually with hindsight that would have been a better deal for them to make. So, look, I, I just think that the situation right now is, will Chelsea win a Premier League or Champions League with this goalkeeper? And if the answer is no, which I think you have to say it is, then Chelsea should move on. But with five years left on his contract where he's paid close to 200 grand a week, it's going to be easier said than done. Yeah, absolutely. And another player that Dermot mentions who Frank Lampard admires is Dean Henderson on loan at Sheffield United from Manchester United but we're assured that there's no chance of that happening it's very interesting that Chelsea are looking in this area and I'm sure in defence as well because 
all we've heard about recently is possibilities of signing more attackers in the form of Kai Havertz. But we'll move away from transfers for now. And while we've got you, I just wanted to know what you make of Manchester City avoiding their Champions League ban today. It certainly ramps up the pressure on Frank Lampard's side to hold on to their top four spot now, doesn't it, I guess? Oh, for sure. I mean, that Chelsea would have been not relying not wanting to rely on, on Manchester City um, and their Champions League ban uphill. Certainly Frank Lampard wouldn't have been telling his players to think about that. And there's no doubt about it, they're, they're under pressure. They, they've been in the top four effectively since October, November. But there's this inconsistency that keeps rearing its ugly head and, and the, the performance at Sheffield United was arguably their worst of the season at a time when they needed to, to keep that momentum going. Um, they're running... Norwich on Tuesday night, you, you would think that they would win that. But to finish the season with Liverpool away and, and Wolves, one of the potential rivals for that top four spot, is a difficult way to finish. So now we're going to really see what this squad is made of. And it's going to have a huge impact on what this club can do because, make no mistake about it, play, the players that they're looking to sign, like Havertz, want to be playing in the Champions League. And 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 then there's also the financial cost of missing out. When when Chelsea won the Europa League in 2019, I think they earned something like 60 million less than Liverpool did from when they won the Champions League. So this next few weeks is going to have a huge impact on Chelsea, both on the pitch and off the pitch. Simon, thank you as ever. Remember, you can hear more from Simon and our other Chelsea writers, Liam Toomey and Dom Fifield, on the Straight Outer Cobham podcast, free to download every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and all your other podcast providers. Hello, I'm James Richardson, host of the Totally Football Show, now part of the Athletics Podcast Network. We're going to be here following all the action as the 2020 football season reaches its belated conclusion. And if you're an Athletics subscriber, you can now hear exclusive ad-free versions of our show on the Athletic app. And don't worry, if you're not a subscriber, you can still listen to us for free with the occasional word from our sponsor by searching for The Totally Football Show on Apple, Spotify and all the usual podcast places. The Totally Football Show with me, James Richardson, still totally free and now totally ad-free on The Athletic. Leeds left it late again on Sunday as they needed a Pablo Hernandez 89th minute winner to beat Swansea, a victory which sees them seeking just four points from their final three games to confirm promotion. So let's check in with The Athletic's Leeds writer Phil Hay now, who has been keeping a very close eye on Marcelo Bielsa. Phil, your piece this morning is entitled, Is Marcelo Bielsa Enjoying This? You watched him for 90 minutes on the touchline yesterday. How's he holding up? He's holding up fairly well, I think, in, in as much as he, he holds up at all. Um, in answer to the question, is he enjoying it? I did ask him that after the game, um, and he said, no, not really, because the only point at which he is going to be able to enjoy this is as and when Leeds cross the line, and, and he's able to tell himself that, that he's done what, what he came here to do. But you, you try to read a lot into into the body language of, of coaches and players, and it was one of the reasons that I wanted to specifically watch him over the 90 minutes at, at Swansea yesterday. That Last week was the first week when technically and, and mathematically Leeds could have gone up. Um, and, and I was interested, it, it wasn't that wasn't how it worked out in the end, but I was interested in the circumstances to see whether or not there was any sign of relaxation in Bielsa, whether his kind of attitude was, was changing, um, and, and whether or not his, his demeanour was changing as, as Leeds got that little bit closer. And, and the honest answer is that it isn't 
um, at all. I mean, you, you forget sometimes with Bielsa that you're talking about a, a 64-year-old. And, and when you look at the 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 effort and the energy um, that he puts into uh, his periods on in the, in the technical area, in the dugout, kicking balls in the way that, that much younger coaches are. Um, you wonder sometimes how his body copes with it and, and you wonder about the levels of stress that he's having to deal with. But I mentioned body language there and, and if you look at the point, firstly at which Pablo Hernandez scored that goal at Swansea, but secondly when the final whistle came, to see his coaches bouncing around um, on the sideline um, and to see you know the, the players mobbing each other on the pitch, I think they feel like they're very nearly there. Um, Bielsa certainly won't tolerate that attitude and you know he, he disappeared very quickly after full time straight down the tunnel and, and took himself away for a period of reflection but you know to, to look at the way um, they reacted at the final whistle I, I think they feel like they've just about done this. Well perhaps he won't tolerate it because he's been here before and suffered disappointment. Um, surely Phil he's got to get them over the line this time and Leeds are surely on their way back to the Premier League which whether you love them or loathe them um, they've got a fan base, a history that many would say belongs in the top flight. You would think that they're there now. I mean, it, it isn't mathematically certain yet, but there's an awful lot that has to go against them and far more than last season for for them to fall short this time. It, it's a maximum of four points from the final three games and it'll be it'll be less than that again if West Brom and, and Brentford can't keep up the chase in, in the way that, that they have been doing. In terms of him slackening off, I, I don't think that'll happen regardless if, if Leeds do this before the final game of the season. I, I, I got in touch with um, a player who'd played under him at, at Newell's Old Boys back in the 1990s and was asking him about the the 1992 um, title win and, and, and what it was like in the final game after Newell's knew already that they were crowned champions. And it was a player called Ricardo Linari and, and he was saying to me that it was just as if you'd been playing in a cup final. There was no change to the starting lineup. It was the strongest eleven. He remembers Bielsa seeming desperate on the touchline as Newells were one 0 down and trying to get a, a late equaliser, even though the the, the result and the match was of no consequence at all. Um, and it, the, the sort of motivation for the piece on Sunday, um, aside from you know just the tension of the promotion running, was the fact that on Thursday when Leeds were five 0 up against Stoke in injury time, he, he was still on the case and he was still getting at them, and it was still a case of barking orders from. Um, from the touchline and you know he came off after the game and said I, I don't think there were five goals between uh, the teams today and, and equally after a very good win at Blackburn his, his translator said said to us or, or translated his comment as saying that was a, a very good win and, and Bielsa you know corrected him immediately and said I didn't say it was very good I said it was you know marginally better than good um, and it's just that perfectionist streak that's coming through yet again. Crystal Palace leads and youth football fans will be interested in an item that you contributed to in my column today. It sheds a bit of light on a dispute between the two clubs over the 16-year-old Palace Academy player, Jaden Raymond. Could you tell us a bit more about what's happened there? He's a player who Leeds are, are very keen on. And, and since um, Andrea Radrazzani bought into Leeds in 2017, there's been a much firmer focus on investment um, in, in youth players and, and academy players. People might have seen the news last week that Leeds have, have been elevated to Category 1 academy status um, under the, the Elite Player Performance Plan, um, e P. Um, and, and that's in part down to the investment they've made since Bielsa's come um, come to the club in, in new facilities but it's also because of the, you know, the, the money that they are investing in players at a lower level um, and Raymond was one that they'd identified he'd, he'd been spotted by um, their 
the head of um, talent recruitment, Craig Dean, um, and he was somebody who they were ready to take on this summer. They they were they were keen to do it. Um, Raymond for a long time was stalling on a deal at Crystal Palace. Didn't seem um, didn't seem like he was he was going to sign up there and, and take a scholarship. And and Leeds were, were very much at the head of the the queue. But he's an England youth international, is Raymond, and and he is technically worth a, a lot of money for a sixteen year old. And and in the end, Leeds took the view that they were likely to be hit um, for a compensation fee of around £750,000, somewhere between that and, and a million pounds, which, you know, in their position is a lot of money for a 16-year-old. And I think if, if they do get promoted to the, the Premier League, um, then they would have the finance to do that sort of deal, a, a gamble still, though, though it would be. But at, at the stage where Raymond was looking for a decision, they, they were still in, well, they are still in the Championship. They, they were still to be confirmed as, as going up um, automatically this season. And I think they felt that it wasn't a deal they could commit to until they were more certain about their, their status. Just finally, last but very much not least, Phil, while we've got you, this weekend was overshadowed by the sad passing of Leeds United legend and World Cup winner Jack Charlton, a giant of a figure from Ellen Road's past. We've seen some really touching tributes, haven't we, including a beautiful piece you wrote on The Athletic. Yeah, also with, with George Coke in that, um, it, it, as ever, it's it's sad to write about these guys, but it's but it's nice to write about them because they, they all have such colourful and, and interesting backgrounds. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry to say that we're on a, a bad run at Leeds. We'd lost Norman Hunter um, in April and, and Trevor Cherry, the club's former captain, a couple of weeks later. And you know, Charlton is another who falls into the category of the of the greatest players who've, who've come through the doors at Ellen Road. He is still the club's leading appearance maker, and I can't see in in the modern era how his tally of seven hundred and seventy three appearances is is going to be challenged or even run close by anybody. I just think it's unthinkable that at any stage um, another player will will eclipse that. Um, but the thing about Jack, which I think made him different to Norman Hunter, not Norman was a you know a big Leeds man. Leeds was was his life. It 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 was where he still was in his final years um, with Jack Charlton he was a one club player and never played for anybody other than Leeds but you had the story of the, the World Cup with England you had the, the wonderful tale of his time as Republic of Ireland manager and, and you know the, beyond the football the story of the way in which the Irish adopted him you had you know things that, extraneous to football like his support of the minor strikes the, the, the different aspects of his life that made him such an interesting guy um, and again it's it's another huge loss for the lead, uh, for Leeds and, and he will be sadly missed round here yeah Lovely words, Phil. Uh, we're marching on together at The Athletic and I'm sure Leeds United will be too in the coming weeks. Enjoy and thanks very much for your time. Thanks, David. Before we go, let's get one more question from Twitter. It comes from AVJ Gunner. It's looking like no European football for Arsenal next season. How would this affect Arteta and the club's plan for the summer? Will they have to sell players to raise money and to rebuild? Well, in truth, I think Arsenal would have always been looking to move some players on this summer. And of course, that would generate income, even more so with uh, the COVID crisis and their likely league finish position, uh, possibly, as you say, no European football, then that will become an even more pressing sort of situation to get players out that... Uh, they don't want uh, maybe the likes of Matteo Guendouzi, uh, a couple of their centre-halves, maybe a midfielder in addition to Guendouzi. We've talked about these sort of um, subjects for quite a while on the, the podcast now. Um, the European thing, if Arsenal miss out, will be a, a really big blow. Uh, despite the difficulty of playing, say, Thursday night and Sunday in the Europa League, um, 
it's the next best option to the Champions League, both in terms of the finances that it brings and the prestige. Players are going to want to play in some form of European competition. And before we write off that tournament, just look at what it's done for Sevilla over the years, for Chelsea last season. And of course, if Arsenal had won it, there would have been great pride and it's a place back into the Champions League too. So Arsenal really going to have to assess things very carefully if there is to be no European football. We know that like many clubs, Arsenal will be looking at uh, some swap deals, some loans, some use of money that is is raised by selling players. And what we don't know is whether the Arsenal ownership could provide any kind of injection of cash. Uh, they haven't provided that for transfer so far, but they have put mechanisms and uh, instruments in place um, to make spending possible. We saw that last summer with the signing of Nicola Pepe, among others. They've also uh, restructured some of their debt to ease the immediate financial pressures during this global health pandemic. And, and you can read much more about that and the ins and outs of it and the implications in various places online. So, I haven't given you great answers there, but I do think that Arsenal are going to be in a similar situation to many clubs. It's a very difficult time. They've got a huge amount of work to do on their squad in terms of uh, outgoings and incomings to really give Mikel Arteta the players that he feels uh, can help implement his plan and vision for the club. It's not going to be quick. We've written in depth about Mikel Arteta and his plans for the club. It's going to need time and patience. Personally, I, I think he will take Arsenal there. Uh, he needs backing from the club and above and Arsenal supporters will be desperate that he gets it uh, and that Arsenal in time fulfil the undoubted potential that Mikel Arteta and they have together. Right, that's it. Thanks for listening as always. We'll be back next week.